Good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to pray with me. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we continue to pray that you would shape our thoughts and our minds, that you continue to refine our perception of what is real, that you would continue to encourage us and bolster us in our faith, and that you would be ever-changing us more into your likeness, we pray. Amen. I can't always see it, and neither can you. In fact, most of the time I don't perceive that it's happening, even though I'd like to. And the same is true for you. I'm talking about the things that God does to accomplish his plan. Many of us make our way through life. We trust God to the very best of our ability. Uh, We try to trust that he is doing something, but it's so tempting to think that when we don't see God working, he must not be working. (laughs) It's, It's so tempting to think that if we don't see God doing something dramatically, then he's probably not working at all. It's a limitation of perspective, and it's also a limitation of time, isn't it? We have a perspective that's obviously limited by our interactions in certain realms or spheres, but we don't also have the right expectations about time. I think our expectations about time are probably getting worse in the culture that we live in. I mean, how long is God going to take to do this thing? I can handle hours of waiting or maybe days. Weeks and months are harder, but doable. But sometimes God plays the long game. And he doesn't accomplish his purpose over days or weeks or even months. Sometimes God does something so slowly by our clock that he takes decades or even centuries to accomplish the things that he is going to do. And the fact that we can't perceive what's happening can lead us to feel hopeless at times. That's almost certainly the case for those that we find in the book of 1 Samuel, those who are coming out of the period of the judges, that Israel is in dire, dire shape. And from the inside, as they're looking at the situation at hand, it had to feel hopeless. (laughs) And as we read in just a moment in 1 Samuel chapter 2, It must certainly feel that way, but watch with me what God does. I want to ask if you've yet to grab a Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's found on page 226, excuse me, of the Pew Bible in front of you. And we pick up the beginning of this book, which which is a large story about God establishing a king in the land. But the story starts seemingly with nothing to do with a king. We read last week about a priest named Eli and a woman named Hannah who was infertile and desperately wanted a son. And God gave her such a son because he cares for her and because he cares for Israel. Today, we learn a little bit more about Eli, this priest, and his sons. And chapter 2, verse 12 starts this way. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That is, the priest's sons were worthless men. 
By the way, they were also priests. (laughs) But they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This was what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And Samuel, the boy, grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And how they would lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not good for you. It is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who could intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me, I shall lightly esteem. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress he will look with envious eye and all the prosperity that shall be bestowed upon Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. 
the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all his descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. The leaders were sinful. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And even the priests had departed from God and from his ways. The leaders were sinful. The priests were the ones who were supposed to mediate between God and humans. The priests were the ones that were supposed to help people in pure worship. The priests were the ones that were supposed to ensure that the sacrifices given to God were done in the appropriate way so that God would hear and see and know the contrition of his people and enjoy the fellowship with them forever. But the leaders were sinful. Eli was a priest in the line of Aaron. And as was the custom when the priest got old, his sons would also become priests. And so Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had now become priests among the people of Israel. And the story that we just read starts on a pretty grim note, and it ends on a pretty grim note. It starts with the description, and you can see where it's going to end up almost from the very beginning. It says this in verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The priests didn't know the Lord. They knew about the Lord. They knew about certain aspects of what it meant to follow the Lord. But they did not know, they did not have faith in the Lord. And so the priests were engaged in a variety of self-serving activities. And what we see in this description is a little bit confusing to us, but let me flesh it out for you. People would come to the tabernacle to offer their sacrifices, a variety of sacrifices throughout the year. And as was the custom, the priests were allowed to, for the meat sacrifices, to allowed to have the breast and the right leg of the sacrifice as food. This is how they were fed, according to Leviticus chapter 7. However, here with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, we read that the priests not only received the breast and the leg, but they added on a new custom to everybody who would come. And they would send their servant, henchman, <laughs> to the camp that you would set up. And as you were boiling your dinner that night, here comes the henchman with a big old barbecue fork and he would 
dig it right down into the middle of the cauldron, and you could just almost picture him fishing for the biggest possible piece of meat that he could find. And he would pull it up, and he'd smile, and he'd walk back to the dwelling of the priests, and they would eat. To everyone who came. And as time went on, the priests figured out that they could get away with this. And they grew a little bit tired of, bar, or of boiled meat. I mean, after all, we all know that grilling meat is much better than boiling meat. And so, when they figured out they didn't have to have chuck roast, but they could get away with ribeye, we see that the henchmen would come and he would actually demand some of the meat before the sacrifice, even the fatty parts, which were the good parts. And if the person resisted, they would threaten violence and take it by force. This was the meat that was meant to be sacrificed to God. And the priests would take it for themselves. And if things weren't bad enough, then we read that Hophni and Phinehas had basically turned the tabernacle and the tent of meeting area into a functional brothel as they lay and had relations with a number of the women who were in service right there outside the tent of meeting. The leaders were sinful. And all the nation was suffering the consequences. And so try to put yourself in the position of one of the families, normal Israelite family that would make the journey from maybe a couple hours, maybe a couple days away, come to the place to offer your sacrifices to God. And you might be thinking to yourself, I don't get it. Why isn't God doing something about this? I mean, I want to worship him. I want to give the sacrifices that he asks me to give. I know I'm supposed to sacrifice, but these thugs are making it really bad for me. Does God even notice? Does God even care? How am I supposed to worship a God? These are supposed to be his people, his guys that are doing this. But nothing is happening. And so if you saw what was happening in the moment, you might feel hopeless. But you can't see everything. And just because you can't see God working doesn't mean that he is working. He was working in ways that were imperceptible to those who were present it's one of the hardest things about the life of faith, I think. And there are a lot of challenging things about being a Christian and about following the Lord. But one of the things that is hardest for me anyway is to trust that God is working in these quiet and imperceptible ways even though I can't see it or can't feel it or it's not dramatic or it's not immediate for me. But we have examples all throughout the Bible and certainly all throughout history of what seems to be real <laughs> and then what God is doing in, around, or underneath what is perceptible to us. One common story from history is told about Christopher Columbus, a day that he was particularly discouraged and he walked by a monastery and he was so thirsty that he went into the monastery for a drink of water and he sat down and he was discouraged and he was talking 
to a monk as he was drinking his water. And he was describing how someday he would like to go on this expedition to find another land, but there was absolutely no way that it was seemingly possible. He got up, he finished his drink, he walked away, refreshed but still discouraged. Not knowing, of course, that the old monk was personal friends with Queen Isabella. The monk then went and convinced her to finance the expedition for Christopher Columbus. And the discoveries of the Americas may have, may have started with a drink of water in a monastery from a discouraged explorer. <laughs> you don't know because you can't see it. But it doesn't mean that God is absent. So I think one of the main points that we're to take away from this fairly depressing text, actually, is that sometimes God accomplishes his work in quiet ways that we cannot perceive, but that we will ultimately, in due course, stand back in awe of. God accomplishes his work most often in quiet ways that we can't perceive. But we will ultimately stand back in awe of it. And so the story continues. Look at it with me. Eli confronts his sons in verse 23 and on for their theft, for their dereliction of duty, for their... uh, conducting the sacrifices poorly, and for their fornication. These guys truly didn't know the Lord, and they truly were evil in what they were doing. And so Eli says to them in verse 23, the priest says, Why do you do such things? I hear all your evil doings from all these people. It's not a good report that I hear from the people of the Lord. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate. But if someone sins against God, who can intercede for him? But they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And you pause and you read that, verse 25 again, and it's chilling in its effect, isn't it? They wouldn't listen to the rebuke because it was God's will to put them to death. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, because of their ongoing rebellion and sin, God put them to death. Almost the opposite is true. God judged them, so they stayed in their ongoing rebellion and sin, and eventually he put them to death. What you see here is what's often called the hardening of God. That there is a sense in which God actually hardens some people's hearts who are living in sin so that they continue in their sin. And this is what it looks like just in this text. These guys are committing grievous sin. God hardens their hearts so that they don't receive the rebuke. And the result is they continue to commit even more grievous sins. This is a double hardening in a sense. This is happening that they are doing to themselves and that God is doing to them. They're so rebellious against God, but God acts to ensure that they stay in their rebellion. And by doing so, God continues to accomplish his purposes, even in the midst of their rebellion. This is the same type of hardening that you see in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh. When you read the account of Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, you'll notice some very specific language. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. 
And then just a couple chapters later, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the people go. There's a dual hardening that's happening there. Romans 1 gives us uh, some understanding about how this works. second part of Romans 1, the Apostle Paul is writing about the great gospel of God. And he is making it clear that God is just in saving people through the Lord Jesus and judging people because of their sin. And then he talks about this idea of God giving people over to their sinful desires. Look at it with me. It says in Romans 1, 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It says just a couple verses later, For this reason God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. And a couple verses after that, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so there comes a point, it seems, where God has had enough of the sin, and he indeed makes us entrenched in it by the hardening of hearts. And there's a couple of things to take away here. The first is, don't miss the big picture. God is hardening Hophni and Phinehas for the grander purpose of purifying the priesthood, of bringing the nation of Israel back to himself. He knows that his people who he has covenanted with, who he loves, who he desires, who he wants, will be best served when they are brought back into a worshipful culture around him. And so he's accomplishing that by purifying the priesthood and by hardening these two particular men. But secondly, the thing that we take away is a warning by example. And the warning is this. If you know what is right and wrong, and you are living in consistent and unrepentant sin against God, know that there is a danger of hardening. If you are associated with God in some way, if you want to follow him in some way, or at least claim that you do, but your life is living in exact opposition to that, be careful. You're in a very dangerous, very dangerous place. And it doesn't do us a lot of good to try to figure out the mechanics of this, because it doesn't say, where, where does God draw the line? How long will he let us go? It doesn't do as much good to figure that out. Does God lack mercy? Is that what this means? That he's not as merciful as I once thought he was? Doesn't do us a lot of good to try to figure that out. But rather, we should shudder before a holy God of the universe who can indeed save people out of the greatest depths of sin and can indeed blind people to their need for repentance. For Hophni and Phinehas, pride is the root of their sin. It's quite obvious. If you, are, if you are going to hijack the sacrifices to God, you must think pretty highly of yourself. And pride, G.K. Chesterton writes, is a poison that is so very poisonous that it not only poisons the virtues, but it even poisons 
poisons other vices. <laughs> and we all do, in fact, know that the primary sin of pride is that it curiously, that this curiously freezing and hardening effect happens even to other sins around it. So God promises to forgive when we ask. But in hardening, you don't even want to ask. Maybe you've seen a person that could be described in this way, somebody that was in some way, shape, or form claimed an association with God, someone who maybe grew up in a Christian home or someone who maybe was a regular church attender. But what you see over time is that despite the outward actions or expressions of desire, there wasn't an inward faith like Hophni and Phineas. Maybe they didn't know the Lord. And so God allows the external behavior to come in line with the internal lack of faith. And he does that as the two come together. That person's standing becomes clear. And even in that, God is working in imperceptible ways. And so the story comes to its conclusion with an expression of God ending the hopelessness of the priesthood with both judgment and replacing that hopelessness with hope. Look at verse 27. It says that there came a man of God to Eli. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord. The only people who approached others with a thus saith the Lord were prophets. This is an unnamed prophet delivering the word of God to this priest. And it's a powerful indictment on his sons and his entire family. And the pronouncement has three main points. The first one is found in the beginning, verses 27 and 28, and that is the blessings of God upon the house of Aaron, the house of the priesthood. And the prophet comes and he reminds Eli, do you not realize how much you've been blessed to be part of this family? God could have chosen any of the other families of Israel to be the priests, but he chose the family of Aaron, and you are part of that family. And there's been great benefits to be part of that family, you have been incredibly blessed as a vessel of God's grace. And that leads to part two. Verse 29. If you were chosen to be priests, then why do you scorn my offerings by honoring your sons above me? God is not just unhappy with Hophni and Phineas. <laughs> He's unhappy with Eli, their father, who saw what the sons were doing but did nothing. Who said, don't do that. Why do you do that? Stop doing that. Bad reputation. And the word that he uses is really interesting. Why do you scorn my offerings? To scorn the offering is literally translated, why are you kicking the offerings to me? Things that are of no value are kicked upon the ground in the dust and the dirt. Things that you don't care about, you walk down the street and get out, get out of the way. Kick it out of the way. You would never take something precious 
You would never take something valuable. You would never, ever, ever take something that was meant to go before the throne room of heaven and kick it in the dust. And that is exactly what Eli and his sons are doing according to the prophet. His sons were evil. And Eli was allowing the evil to happen. And so the prophet pronounces judgment. Verses 31 to 34. And the judgment is this. Expulsion from the priesthood and death to the line of Eli. For the great name of the Lord. And for the preservation of his people. God will no longer tolerate the line of Eli within the priesthood. The broader line of Aaron would stay and remain priest, but Eli's specific branch of that line would be cut off. And it would end with his great-great-grandson, a man named Abiathar, who was a wicked priest during the time of Solomon. He's banished from the kingdom because God takes his worship that seriously. And so here's an application from that that I don't think is too far afield. If you look at the way that God responds to the kicking of his sacrifice, and you think about how that may or may not relate to us, or how we may or may not relate to the characters in this story, I think there's a parallel. That when we know God... And when we recognize the sacrifice of his son Jesus and the great grace that he has bestowed upon us in that sacrifice, and yet we live in intentional and ongoing sin despite the sacrifice, we function in some ways just like Phineas and just like Hophni. Kick the sacrifice. Take the thing that is most precious and most valuable and most efficacious in your entire life before the throne room of heaven and say, not that valuable. And so this is why Paul writes in Romans, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. It doesn't mean that we never sin. Of course we sin. But it reminds us, by way of a warning, that quick and sincere repentance is always the best way forward when we fall into the trap of sin. That quick confession is always the best way forward. Confess quickly. Turn quickly. Don't live down there for too long. It's a very, very dangerous place to be. And it says something that you almost certainly don't want to say. That the sacrifice of Jesus is worthy to be kicked in the dirt. <laughs> Embrace the forgiveness that God offers so quickly. Do not kick the sacrifice he's made for you. You know this to be true in interpersonal relationships. You've seen it again and again. Say you're in some kind of quarrel with a good friend of yours, and you are deeply offended at something that he or she said or has done. What happens when a bunch of time passes and it's never dealt with. One of two things. Either the conflict avoidance piece takes over and you can pretend like nothing ever happened. That doesn't work very well. What happens is anger, bitterness, breakdown of relationship, 
those things build up over time and ultimately create a wedge that grows and grows and grows until there's nothing perceptible left in your friendship. But what happens if your friend who offends you very deeply comes to you almost immediately and says, I am so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? You say, of course I forgive you. I love you. I want our relationship to continue to go forward. And the damage, in one sense, is minimized significantly as, for, as confession is offered quickly and forgiveness is offered completely. You know this to be true with your spouse, especially if you've ever slept on the couch. You know this to be true with your kids. Man, if one of the kids, go, some of your kids are, are wonderful, godly little kids that never do this, but not mine. And if they do something that's intentionally rebellious against me and they live in their obstinance, oh, that makes me angry. And oh, the penalty is much more severe. But if they come quickly and say, Dad, I'm so sorry, forgiven. Forgiven. Just when it seems like there's no way forward for God's people. When it feels like judgment has won. Take a step back and look at the whole part of this chapter with me just for a minute and see a pattern that's emerging. The pattern is this. There's an interplay and a contrast between the sins of the priest and what God is doing in a young man named Eli. Verse 11, or excuse me, a young man named Samuel. Verse 11, young Samuel is serving. Contrast that with the next section, verses 12 to 17, the priests are sinning. But then we see in verses 18 and on, Samuel is serving. (laughs) But then the priests are sinning, and they're ignoring rebuke. And then we see in verse 26 that Samuel is growing. But then we see judgment is on the house of the priests. And the section concludes in chapter 3, verse 1. Samuel is serving. You see what's happening here. God is at work. If you were on the ground, you wouldn't see that he was at work. It's quiet. It's unnoticeable. And when it seems like all is lost, he promises a future. And he's doing it out of this one little quiet boy who is working within the context of the tabernacle named Samuel. Sometimes, sometimes, and maybe a lot of times, God accomplishes his work in quiet ways that we cannot perceive, but will ultimately stand in awe of. Look at the hope that's found in verse 35. And we conclude here. The prophecy ends not just with judgment, but it ends with hope. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. It's important to understand that sometimes prophecies have multiple levels of fulfillment. Here, this has three levels of fulfillment. Samuel is the first level. He's more of a prophet than a priest, but God is raising up a leader among them who will lead them into godliness 
until another will be appointed after him. The intermediate level of this prophecy is found in a godly priest named Zadok. Zadok will replace the last in Eli's line, Abiathar, and his wickedness will be replaced by a godly priest named Zadok, and you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 2. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is found in a priest that doesn't come weeks or months later, that doesn't even come a couple of centuries later, but that comes a number of centuries, ten centuries later, in the person of Jesus. Just at the right time, God would ultimately raise up the perfect priest. And so Hebrews chapter 2.17 describes Jesus as this priest, and it says, Therefore he had to be like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus would become the faithful and eternal and last priest that we would ever need to mediate between God and man. He would mediate and gain nothing for himself. He would not only offer sacrifices before God, but he would become the sacrifice before God. And the ultimate sacrifice at that. And in fact, Hebrews 7.26 goes on to describe him as it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above all of the heavens. Sometimes God works in quiet and imperceptible ways that we cannot see. But when he's complete, we will stand back in awe. And so friends, take heart. The downtrodden message of 1 Samuel chapter 2 leads us to an encouraging conclusion. Take heart. You maybe don't see what God is doing right now in your life. (laughs) You maybe don't see how the work of God is connecting to the news cycle that says, oh, the liberals are winning in 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 their recasting of worshiping God. Or the... Christians are shrinking because they're out of touch with society. Or suffering is on the rise and this proves that God can't be real. Or or whatever the messages of the day might be or might become, take heart. Because God accomplishes work in quiet ways over a very long period of time. And he promises for those that are his that they will ultimately be delivered. Let us pray and ask God to grow in this area of our faith. Father God, we do not have the benefit of standing outside of time. We do not have the benefit of standing above all circumstances. But you do. We cannot even conceive of what it would be like to do the things that you do in the manner that you do them with the timing that you have. And so we pray that you would bolster our confidence in you. Even when we don't feel confident at all. Even when what we see around us leads us to hopelessness. Even though when we ourselves might be in the midst of suffering or difficulty, 
you display yourself not only as a God who cares, but a God who will never abandon his people. And we thank you for never abandoning us. God, we pray that if any of us here today would be in a place where we would be kicking the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, prompt in us a quickness to repentance, that we would enjoy your favor and your grace again. Help us, God, to be a people who worship you, not just that we worship you, but worship you in the ways that you desire to be worshipped. And grow us, Father, in our ability to trust when we cannot see and do not perceive the work that you're doing. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.